Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It is impiety and almost blasphemy to presume to know the will of God. It comes from the sin of pride. Even kings must submit to being used by God's will without knowing what it is. They must never seek to use it. King Philip II of Spain Hello and welcome to the When Diplomacy Fell special on the Thirty Years' War, episode 20.0, the end of the 16th century. This is the first part of what I hope will be a nine-part series on the Thirty Years' War, and will follow the same formula as the World War I special I did before in that each episode will chronologically examine the events from a certain period. As we progress, you should hopefully gain a clearer picture of the circumstances of the time, and will hopefully understand what the major players in Europe hoped to gain in 1618 when they embarked on three decades of murderous warfare. A little disclaimer before we launch into this though, because it's the very first episode, I still don't know entirely what my angle is on this war as a whole. With the First World War, I must confess, I knew a whole lot more about it before I set to work. That's not to suggest I don't have a load of sources and info standing by, just that right now, I haven't developed a clear enough picture of the events as they unfold in my head to be able to say right now definitively that this is how the special in the Thirty Years' War will look, or that this is the angle I plan on taking with it. Undoubtedly, my own opinions, formed academically of course, are likely to emerge once I get into it. But for now, it's quite exciting to have a war I don't fully know the ins and outs of, because it means I'll be learning just like you guys as we go. Hopefully, this means we'll be able to connect a little better. It goes without saying that I'm very excited to cover this, because I've received numerous requests for this war, and as far as I know there isn't a podcast out there that really covers this period in the kind of detail or in the kind of style I plan on doing now. Also, when people say that they like when diplomacy fails, that's often followed by a much appreciated I especially like what he did with World War I, or and his special in the First World War is my all-time favourite. The idea is, I'd like this special to acquire the same kind of status with you guys, and hopefully draw more listeners in, who may just search for the Thirty Years' War on iTunes or Google, one day having never heard of me, only for this podcast to pop up, and for their lives to never be the same again. So let's get to it. As you can see, we have a good deal of ground to cover. 
Oh, finally, I should warn you that these episodes will aim to be just under an hour each for this special. Aim being the key word in this case, since as you can see we've already failed in that regard, but the idea is to make each one more manageable, and help me to hopefully churn out more. While that special ending segment I've adopted will not be making an appearance in this special, since I feel that A, we wouldn't have time for it, and B, it'd break up the narrative too much. Okay then, with all that out of the way, I think we can finally get down to the podcast. Thanks for being a part of this When Diplomacy Fell special, as I now take you to the year 1589. far from certain that the Spanish ships returning in September that had once been the mighty armada represented the end of Spanish predominance in the world. Perhaps more important than anything for Queen Elizabeth of England was the fact that the threat to her island kingdom had now passed, at least temporarily, and that she could now focus on taking the fight to King Philip II of Spain from a more advantageous position. Additionally, it is perhaps less important to think of what happened because of the English victory, and more important to think what would have happened had the Spanish been victorious. By placing it in this perspective, one can see that although Elizabeth had handed Philip a bitter defeat, of far more importance was the fact that this defeat seriously emboldened and ensured the safety of England. In short, if one is to understand the implications of the failure of the Armada, one should look at its impact on Elizabeth rather than its impact on Philip. For Liz, the withdrawal of the Armada meant that a counter-attack should be planned to make the most of the situation. And a multi-layered plan for an English Armada was put in production to be carried out the following year. Because of the Armada's failure, Protestantism was safe in Europe. The Netherlands were still under threat from the Duke of Parma's army, though circumstances in France, which we'll soon encounter, will lessen the threat from his army somewhat. England was by no means a world power, and Spain was by no means finished as one either, but the Armada did signal that this Anglo-Spanish war was not to end in 1588, and that Philip, as king of a Spain that had bore witness to war after war under his reign, now had to turn its full attention and resources towards England out of necessity. This meant that a long war was ahead of both protagonists. Peter Padfield in his book Armada notes on this, quote, Naval battles are seldom, if ever, decisive for more than a season. Oceans cannot be occupied, nor held from fortified positions. Naval supremacy, like freedom, cannot be taken for granted. It has to be looked to constantly. It is more useful to regard the results of naval battles as defining existing economic, technological, and geographical boundaries. The Armada campaign did just that. End quote. Philip thus sought to intervene in Liz's local affairs to increase the burden and hopefully the likelihood of her capitulation, while Elizabeth focused on hitting back at Spain and using her numerous privateers to strike at Spain's vulnerable American and overseas possessions. The following story may surprise you, because it is not the one of outright and instant English victory, 
Rather, it is one of constant back-and-forth struggle between the fledgling English and veteran Spanish empires, and the various distractions within their respective spheres of influence and military campaigns that caused the war to last another 14 years after 1588. The misconception today is that when the Armada failed, the entirety of the Spanish war fleet was destroyed. And this is simply not the case. The majority of the Spanish losses, while they had been horrendous, consisted of the converted merchantman class of ship that were unlikely to be reused after the Armada anyway. Spain's war galleons still remained, and that was the first key element of the next English plan. To destroy once and for all Spain's naval capabilities and its ability to defend its coasts. And Spain will be driven to destruction on a financial, military and strategic level. Another element of the plan was to break the Habsburg hold on the Iberian Peninsula, and thus seriously disrupt Philip's imperial ambitions by removing Portugal from the Iberian Union and placing the long-standing pretender Don Antonio on the throne. This meant a landing in Lisbon, where the population there was expected to support moves by England that would reassert their independence. Additionally, the English fleet would then attack the Spanish treasure fleet, expected to be returning from the New World and land a force to seize the Azores. It was, obviously, a very ambitious plan, and one that shares similarities with Philip's Armada plan of the previous year, for all the wrong reasons. From the beginning, this English Armada, as it has become known, faced the same problems of extreme optimism, unreliable allies, failures in supply, and confusion from the top down that had so plagued its Spanish counterpart. The awaiting fleet possessed no siege guns or cavalry, leaving many to question the actual intentions of the whole enterprise. And those were just the problems with the English Armada itself. The rest of the English plan was also inherently flawed. Don Antonio, the pretender to the Portuguese throne and the man Liz hoped would re-establish Portugal on the side of England, with all the benefits of its empire that came with it, was neither charismatic enough nor liked enough by the Portuguese to have any hope of assuming the throne of Portugal without some serious backup from England. That was to say nothing of the kind of weather problems that should be expected to throw even the best laid plans into disarray. Irrespective of the risks, the fleet commanded by Sir Francis Drake as Admiral and Sir John Norris as General set out for the northwest coast of Spain in early 1589. Philip II of Spain was not simply waiting for the English to attack. Rather, he micromanaged as he had always done. This time, actually fixing the numerous problems that became so apparent during the failure of the Armada. Peter Padfield notes on Philip's progress, quote, The loser, Philip, learned from defeat. He built a royal navy with warships capable of taking on the English at their own game, attempted to expand his gun foundries, noted his fatal mistakes of divided command, and the unaddressed problem of the shoal waters off the Flemish coast that had been dominated by the Dutch, took steps to improve the fortifications of the key points in the defensive system of the Caribbean and had special, fast, heavily armed frigates called Galizabras built to carry the treasure home independently of the slower annual flotas. End quote. To give credit where credit is due, Philip did learn from his mistakes from before and did not simply roll over because Liz had ruined his plans in 1588. Padfield then presents a surprisingly far less rosy picture of the English situation, even following their triumph over Spain the previous year. Quote, the winner, Elizabeth, 
gained extraordinary fame, but nothing else. She learned nothing, perhaps there was nothing much to be learned, except that Philip represented an even graver danger than she or her advisors had supposed. She could never be free of fear of another armada. She needed to continue subsidising the Dutch and French Protestants to prevent Philip gaining access to a deep water port from which he might launch a successful invasion. She had to keep down the Irish in case he should land there, and to provide the subsidies and the land armies she sent to the continent, she had to cut naval expenditure and rely, as before, on London merchants and courtiers to take shares in the joint stock piratical ventures in the hope that they would pay for the increasing expenses of the war. These suffered from the old disadvantage that short-term profit and long-term national aims were usually incompatible. Prizes proved harder to come by, and the treasure which sustained Philip's credit was never captured. 1588 was in most respects the high watermark of the great Elizabethan adventure, and of most of the great names associated with it. Their subsequent history makes sad reading. End quote. This is something of a damning portrayal of the English situation in my view. Certainly Liz was not out of the doghouse simply because she had seen all Philip's armada, but do her subsequent actions really deserve such criticism? Padfield goes on to provide his critique on what many historians who are aware of it would also criticise, the English counter-armada and its objectives when it set sail in early 1589. Quote, Drake was sent out with a veritable armada of his own in 1589. 150 vessels, mostly Dutch and English merchantmen, headed by seven of the Queen's warships, a land force of some 10,000 under Sir John Norris, and the Portuguese pretender Don Antonio. Their aim was to destroy the vessels surviving from the armada in their harbours. Next, attack Lisbon, raise rebellion in the local populace, and reinstate Don Antonio on the Portuguese throne and finally take an island in the Azores and hold it for the rest of the war. Not one of these goals was even remotely attained. End quote. As the English approached the Spanish coast, it met with the first of what would be a flurry of storms during the campaign. Drake decided to besiege Corona in Galicia instead, which is in the top northwest part of Spain. Corona in the years before had been an important textile city, and Charles V was said to have been especially fond of it because of the numerous folk tales and legends which surrounded its foundation. Medina Sidonia had used Corona in the year before while he was waiting out a storm, if you can remember back to the last episode on the Spanish Armada. In 1589 Corona was a hub of industrial and naval activity due to its geographic location and its designated purpose by Philip as the city which should conduct repairs and refitting on the armada ships from the previous year. Thus, the possibilities for plunder and strategic attack were high in Drake's mind, though the original intended target had been Santander. The English swarmed ashore and took the lower part of the town, much of the wine from those cities wine cellars were famously made off with, and the Spanish were then subjected to the drunken slurs and songs of the English for the duration of the siege, as the Spanish refused to break and the English discipline began to wane. The Spanish did not break because they were being resupplied by routes unfamiliar to the English, and the upper part of the city was never captured. Drake ordered his forces to sail away and they made for Lisbon, where Don Antonio hoped to finally seize the Portuguese throne. 
However, it was not to be, as English mismanagement and the sheer absence of local Portuguese support for the venture prevented much progress. Despite the English destruction of the Portuguese granaries, the capture of 20 French and 60 Hanseatic League ships, who had both travelled all the way around Scotland just to avoid the English blockade of foreign trade against Spain, only to stumble upon a large English fleet off that same Spanish coast, little English success was achieved, and Lisbon remained wholly under the influence of Philip. With Liz refusing to maintain a land war in Portugal, if that was not the wish of the overall Portuguese populace, the English were forced to leave Lisbon after sacking the surrounding lands and attempt to carry out the third part of the plan and land in the Azores. This too was unsuccessful. Having expended much resources and now at the mercy of rough seas and harsh weather, the English came under further pressure from the threat of disease and the ever-increasing presence of the Spanish who had learned from the English tactics, and were not about to let the Azores become an English base. Philip committed fully to repelling the English, and soon began to see results. The English were forced to sail for home. Though John Hawkins would be sent the following year to capture the Spanish treasure fleet, this venture would be unsuccessful too, and the Spanish had created new ways to deal with the piratical English, meaning such great hauls at the expense of the Spanish would be only very rare occurrences from then on. While Liz had to come to terms with her further indebtedness, she was made more aware of the now surplus in treasure that was flowing into the coffers of Philip, all in support she feared, rightly as it turned out, of another invasion. Elizabeth had unsuccessfully attempted to capitalise on the success of the previous year of 1588 with an armada of her own, and would pay the price over the next decade in fear. Elizabeth was to always be in fear of where Philip would strike next and would not act as boldly as she had done here for another five years. In the meantime, Philip continued to do what he had been doing since the failure of the Armada, preparing a second Armada. Having learned from his mistakes, Philip was confident of success this time around. Perhaps, Philip might have actually launched the Armada within the next year or so, had he not become so distracted with another power at the time, France. Emerging on the scene in 1572 as King of Navarre, after the death of his mother, Henry pressed his claim to the French throne by way of his father, who was a ninth generation descendant of Louis IX of France, and by way of his mother, who was not only a Queen of Navarre, that kingdom between the south of France and the northeast coast of Spain, but was also the niece of Francis I of France, a critical monarch in the maturation of France's identity. Henry of Navarre had other important ties to other institutions too. He was nephew to Louis, Prince of Condé, who was leader of the Huguenots in France, and Henry assumed this title in 1569 when Louis died, becoming the spiritual and symbolic figurehead of the Huguenots himself, while longtime ruler of the Huguenots, Gaspard de Coligny, who will come into contact with later, remained in control of the Huguenots on a political and military level. For the Huguenots themselves, despite the previous improvements to their rights of worship, 
particularly the Peace of Saint-Germain, which guaranteed rights to the Protestant and Calvinist nobility in the South, the threat of persecution remained a real one, and thus many were apprehensive about even remaining in the country. This is explained by Vincent J. Pitts in his book Henry IV of France, His Reign and Age. Quote, Henry's fate was not certain in the months following the Peace of Saint-Germain. His future was largely bound up with the complexities arising from the intersection of French domestic policies and international developments, particularly in the Netherlands. In domestic terms, the latest civil war had left a residue of distrust on both sides of the Catholic-Huguenot divide, symbolised by the refusal of any of the major Huguenot leaders to return to court. They preferred to remain in secure locations, from where they could negotiate the application of the peace terms. In spite of the professed intentions of King Charles IX and Catherine de' Medici, implementation was no simple task given the hostility of the Catholic party, led by the Guises, who could rely on Spanish and papal diplomats to second their objections to a peace with heretics. End quote. It did not help, of course, that the fortunes of the Huguenots were largely tied to their greatest supporters, the Protestant Dutch and English, and that as the circumstances in those areas grew better or worse, the fortunes of the Huguenots followed. Vincent J. Pitts continues his analysis of the Huguenots. Quote, the Huguenots' sense of insecurity was linked to their passionate interest in the events of the Netherlands. A Spanish victory over the Dutch rebels there may encourage the French Catholics to crush the Huguenots, perhaps with the help of some Spanish troops currently involved in the Netherlands. If, however, a real reconciliation could be achieved between the Huguenots and the French crown, a very different outcome was possible. An intervention by France, with English assistance, on the side of the Dutch rebels. Such a war might unite the noble factions of France across denominational lines against their traditional foe. A successful outcome would diminish or even eliminate the Spanish threat to France on its northeastern frontier while creating a Calvinist state that Huguenots could look to for support, even refuge. End quote. Behind every great Middle Ages monarch is a doting, concerned, and guiding mother, and Henry of Navarre was no exception. In the years before 1572, Henry's mother, who was Queen Jean III of Navarre, provided him with invaluable counsel, and, though at times her judgment and advice for Henry chafed with the advice filtering down from the mother of the King of France, Catherine de Medici, Henry's maturation under her guidance moulded his character into an extremely well-rounded and altogether lovable chap. As Vincent J. Pitts notes, quote, Henry was profuse in his gratitude to Jean. She had pushed him forward at a moment of crisis to assume the titular leadership of the Huguenots in arms, making it possible for him to become the party chief in earnest when he grew older. She had accomplished this by stressing the legitimacy that his royal blood conferred on the movement. She had shown him how to seek allies abroad and how to negotiate from a position of relative weakness. She had seen to his instruction on the day-to-day -day tasks of governance, and above all, had taught him to make his decisions as a dynast, to subordinate all other considerations to his interests as head of the House of Bourbon and first prince of the blood. End quote. In 1572, the same year as the death of his beloved mother and of his ascending to the throne of Navarre, Catherine de Medici invited our Henry to wed King Charles's sister, Margaret. 
There was great excitement in the land, as all the Protestants and Catholics were expecting this to signify the end of the French wars of religion that had ripped the country apart on and off for the past five years. From the beginning there was a problem with getting the Pope to legalise the marriage, and King Charles of France and Catherine de' Medici ended up lying to their cardinal, Cardinal Bourbon, that the documents of approval were en route, even though no such documents had been sent, and the wedding was sent for Monday the 18th of August 1572. It was indeed a symbolic event. Not only did it mark the hopeful end of religious conflict by combining the two royal families and the interests of the Catholics and Huguenots into one, but it also signified that the Bourbon dynasty was to be revitalised with royal blood yet again, and that henceforth a Bourbon voila dynasty would rule France. By the weekend though, the whole procession had been marred by various conflicting elements. Most notable was the attempted assassination of Gaspard de Coligny, remember the practical leader of the Huguenots we encountered earlier. It is not entirely certain today who was responsible for the attack on Gaspard, except that it failed, and that Charles and Catherine, fearing the outbreak of mob violence and the reaction of the Huguenots in Paris, decided to preempt this mob violence by starting their own mob violence and killing the key leaders of the Huguenots. Central to the apparent overreaction of Catherine and Charles was their great fears of a Huguenot insurrection, as the Huguenots were preparing to move into the Netherlands to campaign against Spain there. Vincent J. Pitts describes the events of that crucial Saturday, the 23rd of August, 1572. Quote, During the course of the Saturday afternoon and evening, Catherine and her advisers presented variations on these themes to the impressionable Charles IX who, like his late brother Francois II, was given to irascibility and impetuous behaviour. If Catherine and others managed to persuade Charles of Admiral Coligny's duplicity, the reaction was predictable. A violent explosion and authorization to punish the would-be plotters against his life and throne. Once armed with the king's approval, Catherine and her collaborators were free to act. The guises were brought into the planning for a preemptive strike against the Huguenot leadership, as were Henry de Anjou, officers of the Household Guard and commanders of the city militia. End quote. What followed was an orgy of state-sponsored violence against the Huguenot guests living in Paris, followed further by a reactionary atmosphere of mob violence as tensions that had been bubbling under the surface finally exploded, and Parisians hunted down any and all Huguenots they could find. Coligny was killed in his residence, as was the leadership of the Huguenots at large. When word reached Charles IX of the tremendous escalation of the events and their terrible results, he ordered an end to the killing, but even the word of the king could not stay the hands of the Parisian citizens, nor hide any more the hatred and emotions built under religious tension that the Catholic Parisians felt they had endured for too long. Henry had resided as a guest in his bedchamber in Charles's royal palace, and had thus escaped the bloodshed, but he was well aware of the night's events, and spent the night corresponding with letters from friends and associates that he could not bring himself to believe. The next morning an incredibly emotional and difficult scene awaited Henry of Navarre. He was summoned to the king's chambers, and the doors were shut on his Huguenot entourage. While conversing with the king, Henry and his only other ally in the room, another Henry, Prince of Condé, son of the Louis of Condé, 
whose death before had granted Henry of Navarre leadership of the Huguenots in 1569, argued with Charles of France and his mother in a scene right out of cinema. Vincent J. Pitts describes it. Quote, Charles confronted his cousins with evidence of the Huguenot plot against his crown, and told them he had ordered the execution of its alleged leaders, and offered them their lives conditional upon immediate renunciation of heresy. This offer may have had as much to do with their recent marriages as their royal blood. Henry was, after all, the king's brother-in-law, and Condé the brother-in-law of Guise and Nevers, two of the leaders of the massacre. Or it may have been a shrewd calculation by Catherine that the Bourbons were a necessary counterweight to the overbearing Guises. While the two stood before the glowering monarch, the king's guards had already begun to massacre the Huguenots within the palace. The cries of their Huguenot followers, cut down in corridors or massacred in the courtyard below, must have been audible to the princes inside the king's apartments. Condé, nevertheless, was defiant, charging that the king had disgraced himself by breaking his own edicts to murder his guests. Charles was not swayed. Instead, he flew into a rage and threatened the prince. Henry, who doubtlessly knew the story of his father's confrontation with Francois II, Charles's brother, borrowed from it, speaking like a little lamb, according to a Florentine commentator, and promising to obey the king in all things. Neither prince converted immediately. Condé is said to have rejected the choice of mass, death, or the Bastille, offered at a later interview with the king. Nevertheless, the outcome was identical. In September, after perfunctory instruction, the two princes were received back into the Roman Catholic faith on their baptism. Henry was forced to write a letter to the Pope announcing this happy event, and to order the re-establishment of Catholicism in his sovereign domains. End quote. The years following this red wedding actually saw a period of relative calm enter into France, while the underlying tensions remained strong. On the one side was Henry of Navarre, leader of the Huguenots and King of Navarre, with considerable backing from the Protestant Dutch and English. Sort of in the middle was Charles IX of France, soon to be replaced by another Henry, Henry III of France, in 1574. The man who would be the last monarch of the Wallau royal line, and who often tried to balance between supporting the majority Catholic population and ensuring he remained popular enough with the Protestant minority and the Huguenots to incur their loyalty too. But it was a highly difficult balancing act. And certainly Charles IX's rule was characterised by the kind of instability one should expect from a kingdom which was, at that stage, in a state of essentially ruinous internal conflict. Charles repeatedly attacked the Huguenot elements within France, most notably the fortress town of La Rochelle, which sucked in 30,000 French troops and a whole lot of money in early 1573, before leaving with its tail between its legs at the end of the year. Finally, on the other side of the spectrum was another Henry, this one being Henry of Guise, an influential Catholic noble whose leadership of the Catholic League set Henry of Guise on a strong footing in France. Henry of Guise enjoyed the direct support of Philip II of Spain, and if you'll remember from WDF 24, it was the Guises and Philip who would sign the Treaty of Joinville in 1584 that had so worried Elizabeth. If you'll remember also from that episode, they didn't last very long after 1584, and that's because the relative calm that followed the Red Wedding in 1572 didn't last very long either. Once Henry III's younger brother Francois, the Duke of Anjou, died in 1584, 
the Catholic League became incensed with the fact that the Protestant Henry of Navarre, with his maternal ties to King Francis I and his paternal ties to King Louis IX, was now the next in line to the throne of France. Hostilities began again, just as Liz and Phil were beginning their epic stare-down that resulted in fisticuffs the following year. Henry of Navarre, who had escaped from the captivity of the French monarchy in 1576, reaffirmed his Protestantism and returned to his Huguenot power base, was right in the centre of it. When Henry III of France, king since 1574, saw his brother and heir to the French throne Francis, Duke of Anjou, die in 1584, he knew that Henry of Navarre was the heir presumptive to the French throne. In time, Henry III would come to support Henry of Navarre's claim to the throne, but initially the Royalists maintained an uneasy alliance with the Catholic League. Henry of Navarre thus had to face the combined forces of the Royalists, led by Henry III, and the Catholic League, led by Henry Duke of Guise. The resulting War of the Three Henrys was another aspect of the French Wars of Religion, but did represent at the same time France's opportunity to strike out of the Spanish orbit it had so long dwelt in, if it could only overcome the Spanish and extremist Catholic influences. The only problem with this striking out was, for many Catholics, the very fact that their monarch would then be a Protestant, and that the rights of all Catholics would be placed on the back burner for the sake of the reformist elements of Christendom, such as the hated Huguenots. As we'll see, though, part of Henry of Navarre's brilliance was his ability to compromise and please both sides. In the mid-1580s, Henry was able to command an inspirational presence on the battlefield, and his insistence on leading by military example granted his claim legitimacy. But Henry of Guise was able to call not just on the Catholic League and thus Spain for support, but also the majority of Catholic France, who so feared the implications of a Protestant monarch. Henry III did actually try to cancel some of the previous edicts he had made, which had favoured religious tolerance in the country in 1585 because the immense pressure he faced from the predominant Catholic faction placed Henry of Navarre's succession in doubt, and thus King Henry III thought he had no choice. But Henry of Navarre won the Battle of Cotra on the 20th of October 1587, scattering Catholic forces and killing Anne of Joyeuse, a well-known associate of the Catholic faction in France and a close personal friend of Henry of Guise. De Joyeuse had surrendered on the battlefield, and even offered a ransom of 100,000 écus. But Henry of Navarre was not impressed, and remembered Anne de Joyeuse's massacre of 800 Huguenots at saint Eloy in June of that year, and executed him as punishment. The important Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. ...of Anne de Joyeuse had been his position as an intermediary between the Catholic League and the Royalists. Upon his death, Henry of Navarre had seriously jeopardised the ability of the two sides to cooperate. And thus the war briefly became a triple threat, for those wrestling fans listening, or in other words, every Henry for himself. The Catholic League seized Paris later that year, in an uprising said to be planned by a resident Spanish diplomat and Henry III thus began to seek out Henry of Navarre as an ally. Though at this stage he was basically in captivity in his own kingdom, Henry III continued to try and make things more difficult for the Catholic League and Henry of Guise. Henry III spent a night with one of his many mistresses on a cold December evening in 1588, who was also a very accomplished member of his infamous squad of female spies slash assassins known as the Flying Squadron which I realise sounds like the title and premise to a movie, so for history's sake I really really hope no directors are listening. Anyway, this woman, Charlotte de Suave, that was definitely her real name, seems to have planted the bold idea in Henry's head to simply summon Henry of Guise before him, as he often did, and then use his guard to kill him. This Henry did the next day, and in doing so placed himself in serious danger within his own kingdom. Almost immediately then, he sought refuge with Henry of Navarre, and this act was a de facto recognition of Henry of Navarre as the next in line to the French throne. Henry III must have expected that he was not long for this world, simply because of the far-reaching influences of the Catholic League that basically guaranteed he would fall victim to assassination in the near future. But with Henry of Guise dead, Henry of Navarre became more emboldened and sought Paris as his next objective. His previous military success had established quite the reputation for Henry, particularly the Battle of Arques over the 15th to the 18th of September 1589. In that previous August 1589, King Henry III of France had been assassinated by a monk sent by the Catholic League, and Henry of Navarre, now the last Henry standing, was officially the King of France. But France was not his yet, and just because he was the last Henry standing did not mean his victory over all those within France who did not want to see him reign was complete. In fact, so total was the force of the Catholic League in 1589, supported heavily by Philip of Spain, that Henry of Navarre, for future reference now to be called Henry IV, was essentially forced to the south of France. The Battle of Ivry further established Henry's legend though, and was the occasion in which he made the following speech. Companions, if you today run risk with me, I will also run risk with you. I will be victorious or die. 
God is with us. Look at his and our enemies. Look at your king. Hold your ranks. I beg of you. And if the heat of battle makes you leave them, think also of rallying back. Therein lies the key to victory. You will find it among those three trees that you can see over there on your right side. If you lose your ensigns, cornets or flags, do not lose sight of my panache. You will always find it on the road to honour and victory. With the victory at the Battle of Ivry in hand, Henry made for Paris itself. Because he only possessed around 12,000 men and practically no siege equipment, Henry knew that the only course was to starve Paris out. He had captured the outlying suburbs by August 1590, but by the end of the month he received word that a joint Spanish-Catholic League force of about 50,000 under the command of Alexander Farnese, the Duke of Parma, was on the way from the Netherlands to relieve the siege. And this history, friends, is where our stories begin to overlap. Parma was under orders from King Philip II of Spain to prevent Paris falling into the Protestant Henry IV of France's hands. After failing to force the surrender of Paris, Henry retreated to fight another day. Though it seemed like a victory for the Catholic elements in France and for the Catholic League as a whole, their designated heir for the French throne, Cardinal Bourbon, that same chap who had been tricked into marrying Henry IV and King Charles's sister in 1572, died later that year. They argued about the succession until settling on Isabella Clara Eugenia, daughter of Philip of Spain and Elizabeth Fola. But this choice seriously undermined the Catholic League, as it demonstrated just how under the thumb of Spain France would come to be if such plans came to fruition, aside from the fact that France was under Salic law, which meant that no woman could inherit the throne. Henry would famously solve everyone's problems in this case though, by converting to Catholicism in 1593, perhaps under the influence of his favourite mistress, Gabrielle d'Estrée, who also happened to be the love of his life. It is likely, though, that Henry himself also noted the impact such a conversion would have, and believed that, as the King of France, he would also be able to pass the kind of legislation that would ensure the safety of his Huguenot supporters. However, upon his conversion to Catholicism, it was the Catholic population who largely embraced him as their king, and began to loathe the Catholic League's elements which still resided in their country. The Protestant Huguenots were aghast at the sudden turnaround in their leader, who they had supported in the years before in the hope that he would bring equal rights and opportunities to them in their place of birth. Some years later, when his reign was secure in 1598, Henry would attempt to do this with the Edict of Nantes. And though this didn't go far enough in the opinions of many Huguenots, as Geoffrey Parker explains in his book, Europe in Crisis, 1598-1648, his legacy still stands tall. Quote, when Henry III was assassinated in 1589, the king's writ only ran in the lower valley, the treasury lay empty, and an organisation paid by Spain controlled much of France. When Henry IV was assassinated in 1610, after at least 23 previously unsuccessful attempts, royal orders commanded respect throughout France, the treasury had a surplus, and France sent regular subsidies to those foreign powers whose continuing independence Henry wished to guarantee. The tide turned in 1598. On the one hand, the Peace of Vervon on the 2nd of May 1598 ended war with Spain, while a series of private agreements and cash bribes totaling 7 million crowns almost an entire year's crown revenues, 
persuaded Spain's French allies to stop fighting. On the other hand, in April, Henry induced both the Catholics and the Protestants to lay down their arms. The settlement, known as the Edict of Nantes, consisted of four separate documents. An Edict of 92 Articles detailed a series of far-reaching religious compromises. End quote. After years of internal strife, France was now finally on a path towards security and European predominance that it would become famous for. As the new king of France, and the first Bourbon monarch at that, Henry had his work cut out for him, and his intrigues with Spain and England were by no means over yet. After emerging from six years of disgrace, after the failure of the English Armada in 1589, and his de facto replacement, as is his favourite, by Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex, who we'll run into later, Sir Francis Drake remained determined to strike at Spain and its overseas empire in America. An expedition to the Americas was planned by Drake and to be assisted by John Hawkins, the man who had so reformed the English fleet before to such great effect. On paper, it sounds like a sure recipe for success. This is great as statesmen were getting the band back together again and going for the jugular. But neither men were the men they once were, and Philip had gone to great lengths to ensure that Spain was not the Spain it once was, with the result that by 1596, the expedition had run out of steam with little to show for it. Both men were dead from disease, and their bodies committed to the sea they had once so terrifyingly controlled and Philip was now more ready than ever to capitalise on Liz's overstretching. Peter Padfield notes on the deaths of the two men, quote, Both men, who had done more than any individuals to shape the Elizabethan legend, the one forcing through and administering a revolutionary change in worship designs, the other, a seaman of intuitive genius, had come to represent all that was most daring and successful in plundering the King of Spain but they found their final resting place appropriately enough and the waters of that alluring triangle of the Spanish main which had occupied so many Elizabethan dreams, and not least their own." End quote. Liz had already allocated many resources to the defence of Brittany, where a large English contingent landed to join up with the Huguenot force as early as 1590. Liz greatly feared the implications of a northwestern France controlled by Spain and sought to preempt Philip's plans for getting closer to England by landing first at Brest and reinforcing it. Despite this advantageous position, though, the English military ventures into Brittany were largely a dismal failure, and in the winter of 1593-94, Philip's commander in Brittany moved his troops into the Camaray Peninsula, just below the great natural harbour of Brest, and began to construct a fort there. To Liz, this fort became the next obsession. She sent her loyal admiral, Sir Martin Frobisher, who had made major ventures out to what would become Canada in the mid-1570s in an effort to find the Northwest Passage, to attack the region. Peter Padfield notes what occurred. Quote, 
The prospect of Spaniards controlling harbours in Brittany seemed to Elizabeth as dangerous as Spaniards in Ireland, and in the summer of 1594, Frobisher was sent with eight warships and a force of some 3,000 men to reduce the fort. They did so after a short siege, putting all survivors to the sword. This was Frobisher's last service for his queen. He was wounded and died soon after bringing the squadron back from Plymouth. End quote. With Brittany dealt with, Liz was able to focus on what she had always pursued a keen interest in, international affairs. In the previous episode on the Spanish Armada, we learned of Elizabeth's heavy investment in seeking Ottoman aid, specifically an article by Edward Barton and Edwin Pears entitled The Spanish Armada and the Ottoman Port. Drawing on this article again comes the following conclusion from the authors, with an interesting note on a nature of the Turkish state throughout history. Quote, the defeat of Lepanto, the war with Persia, and the rising of the subject provinces in North Africa did much to deter the Turk from lending aid. The heavy bribes by which Spain was able to obtain the support of the ministers and favourites of the Sultan probably did more. But the unreadiness which the Turk has so often shown to arrive at any decision upon diplomatic questions until he is finally forced to do so was probably the main reason which led to Elizabeth's diplomatic failure. Just as when in 1877 the port refused to listen to the United Voice of Europe, so in the Spanish struggle the Sultan neglected to cooperate with England. There was an abundance of promises, but one excuse after another would be found, and the end was the usual one, that nothing was done. End quote. But Elizabeth also pursued better relations with Morocco, which, because of its geographical positioning, was a critical ally for Elizabeth and in the years before, Morocco had enjoyed superior trade relations with her kingdom, much to the dismay of Philip, whose insistence that they stop in the name of the common Christian good fell on deaf ears. In fact, the English Barbary Company had been established in 1585 for just such a purpose as dealing with those states who may be viewed as unsavoury by Christian Europe, but which were vital in Liz's struggle against Spain. One should also bear in mind the effects of the Pope's papal bulls at the time that outlawed any trade with such states in North Africa and the Ottoman Empire. It was doubly effective for Elizabeth because it meant that a. such trade placed England at a strategic or at least financial advantage with the influx of sugar, ostrich feathers and saltpetre into England, and b. the Muslim states which Liz traded with were so grateful to have access to Western European goods such as armour, gunpowder, firearms and other fabrics that Liz was able to secure the best deals with them, while also propping them up technologically to the great detriment of Spain. Of course, Liz had to face the controversy and venomous spewing from the Catholic states who thought her trade with the infidels sacrilegious, but such concerns were in second place to the gains Liz made in these ventures, a fact well explained by Matthew Dimmock in his book New Turks, Dramatising Islam and the Ottomans in Early Modern England. Quote, as this controversy raged, the English were simultaneously taking advantage of papal prohibitions to which they owed no allegiance to trade military supplies to the Ottomans as well as the Barbary states. This is reported by Perez Mendoza, the Spanish ambassador to the papal states. They not only employ the profit in sending a multitude of vessels to Barbary with arms and munitions, but have now begun to trade with the Levant, whither they take tin and other prohibited goods to the Turks. 
This focus upon the scale and nature of the trade, consistent with a number of other letters, and its prohibited nature, leaves little doubt regarding the investments of the Spanish ambassador. As one later Catholic propagandist tract suggested, the English had found new confederates in the Great Turk, the Kings of Fez, Morocco and Algiers, or other Mohammedan and Moors of Barbary, all of whom were supposed to be professed enemies of Christ. End quote. It was Morocco that Elizabeth formed the closest ties with out of all the North African states, though, negotiating heavily with its sultan, Ahmed al-Mansur, who had been ruling the strategically located Arab country since 1578. Al-Mansur sent his personal secretary for foreign affairs, Abdul ben Masoud, as a rep of the Barbary states to England. The Barbary states were like a collective of North African states, which centred on the hubs of Tripoli, Fez and Tunis. All of these cities controlled their immediate areas and answered officially to the Ottoman Empire, but unofficially, they possessed a great deal of autonomy in their policies, and this is demonstrated by Al-Mansur's policy of a treaty with Liz, on behalf of the Barbary states for the sake of trade, but on behalf of Morocco for the sake of a military alliance, which came about at the close of the 16th century, and which Liz gratefully accepted. What made Liz so willing to accept Moroccan offers of military friendship after refusing such a deal in the years before? Well, Liz had a lot on her plate at this time, and the often forgotten fact is that the contents of her plate were not just consisting of Spanish, Dutch, Habsburg, Portuguese, or even Scandinavian meals. What Liz really spent the most money, men, and materials on from 1595 until her death was her other official kingdom and her neighbour across the sea. Ireland. Since the times of the Norman Conquest, Ireland had always been something of a sideshow to the main event in England. During the reign of Henry VIII, a massive undertaking to expand the English-controlled region in Ireland, known as the Pale, went into production. The plan itself struggled against the dynastic, religious and geographic makeup of a country that to many English seemed altogether unnatural. The Pale was basically an English colony on the east coast of Ireland that stretched across the counties of Wicklow down south and north into Monaghan, with Dublin as the epicentre. Of particular importance was Dublin Castle, for its symbol of English strength and as the centre of English governance in Ireland. But also symbolic was the Wicklow Mountains, that stretch of dense and apparently impenetrable woodland that can be seen from my house that stretched as far as the eye could see west. These represented the sure borders of English authority, and the Pale itself was populated by Catholic English subjects who were Catholic because of their Catholic Norman ancestry. Thus, the solution for the English state in Ireland was not always a straightforward one. Should religious legislation be passed, chastising the fiercely Catholic Gaelic Irish, considered feral or at least barbaric, then England's loyal Old English subjects within the Pale would become chastised too, and may perhaps seek an alliance with those Gaelic Irish not because they wished to upturn the power of the English state in Ireland, but because they wanted equal rights and opportunities within that state. 
to the north of the country was something of a no-go area for the English, though this fact was slowly changing, as this area was ruled by powerful Gaelic clans who proudly guarded their independence against any infringement by England. To England's benefit though, the clans occupying what can now be called Ulster were frequently engaged in a kind of civil war, which prevented them from uniting, and left each clan or chieftain vulnerable to promises of power, influence, and wealth under the English system, which was exploited very effectively by the English state. To the south of Ireland, limited attempts at plantations, or intensified colonisation of the area with Protestant English settlers, met largely with failure, and the west of the country remained a barren, sparsely populated and tough place to live in, mainly because it had such a reputation at the time for being such a barren, sparsely populated and tough place to live in. Regardless, it was the Pale and the north of Ireland that really mattered, since that's where the power was concentrated in the land. The English, concentrating in the former, and the Gaelic-Irish, coming under increasing pressure from the English, concentrating on the latter. Obviously, I am very interested in this topic, but because we don't have all the time in the world, I don't want to get bogged down in the nitty-gritty details of what would become known as the Nine Years' War. I am instead going to focus on the key events and figures, starting with arguably the man behind the whole thing, Hugh O'Neill. Hugh O'Neill was the Earl of Tyrone, and the Lordship of Tyrone happened to be the most powerful Gaelic entity in Ireland at the time. His earldom was of course granted to him by Liz herself, but Hugh's real power lay in his position within the O'Neill family. As the O'Neill, or head of the O'Neill clan, a position established for Hugh in the same tradition as it had been for his ancestors before, on a stone throne in his family's ceremonial headquarters at Tullahogue, Hugh began to see the extent of his power and the extent to which the English wished to restrict it. For years, England had been attempting to implement a policy known as Surrender and Regrant with the Gaelic-Irish, which basically involved trying to trade the old Gaelic-Irish ways of clan systems and a feudal hierarchy to an English-sponsored and managed system whereby each appointment within that earl's lands could be witnessed and the resources and capabilities of the land could be assessed. In short, the Irish were being made more like the English, and some, like O'Neill, left at the chance, at least initially, to possess some English-sponsored power in return for pledging loyalty to the English crown, which, oh yeah, was another part of the surrender and grant policy that I forgot to mention. Although Liz had granted Hugh his earldom, she was as eager as the rest of her advisers to reduce the power of the O'Neills by increasing the rate of surrender and regrant and placing the English crown at a level above all domestic Gaelic-Irish quarrels, so that, whatever the result of localised Irish feuding, in the end they recognised the extent and reach of her power. Considerable as English might in Ireland was, it is believed that Liz feared the repercussions of a rebellion in Ireland fuelled by the O'Neill clan and Hugh's Tyrone lordship really threw the power balance of the English state of Ireland out of whack. As Hiram Morgan, in his book, Tyrone's Rebellion, The Outbreak of the Nine Years' War in Tudor Ireland, notes, quote, The central position and strength of his lordship and multiplicity of his dynastic alliances gave him hegemony in Ulster. This situation left government policy in tatters, and its implementation wholly dependent on the goodwill of the Earl. End quote. Hugh O'Neill's strength in this regard explains why his subsequent rebellion poses such a significant threat to the English state in Ireland. 
However, once the rebellion actually broke out, there were practical strategic factors which made the rebellion such a notable threat to the English state in Ireland too. These included the geography of the land, which enabled O'Neill to withdraw his forces back into the forests and fight a protracted guerrilla campaign, rather than offering the English a pitched battle. Hugh O'Neill made use of the cooperation he enjoyed from the other earls too, who would ordinarily have been fighting amongst themselves. The O'Neills, the O'Donnell and the Maguire clans had had a long history of inter-clan rivalry that prevented their cooperation against the English state. What made this rebellion different was the fact that O'Neill was able to unite practically all of Ulster's families behind him, thus providing an agreed-upon goal for all involved. As Morgan notes, quote, The interests, and therefore the fortunes, of O'Neill, O'Guire and O'Donnell were inextricably linked. End quote. But what were the goals of Hugh O'Neill, and why did these goals pose such a significant threat to the English state in Ireland? Hugh O'Neill wrote himself that his goals included that the Church of Ireland be wholly governed by the Pope, that the Lord Chancellor, Lord Treasurer, Lord Admiral, the Council of State, the Justices of the Laws, Queen's Attorney, Queen's Sergeant, and all other officers appertaining to the Council and Law of Ireland be Irishmen that all Irishmen may freely build ships at what burden they will, furnishing the same with artillery and all munitions at their pleasure, that their master of ordnance and half the soldiers with their officers resident in Ireland be Irishmen, that no Englishman be a churchman in Ireland. The status of Ulster being what it was, Liz's ministers had sought to reduce the province's power and bring it under the control of the crown. Though this failed in the early 1590s, it was successful elsewhere in Ireland, and the counties of Monaghan, Cavan and Longford saw the expulsion of the McMahons, O'Reillys and O'Farrells respectively, as well as the division of their lands. But Hugh was determined to resist such an action to reduce his lands, and when the Englishman Henry Bagenal arrived in Hugh's lands and informed him that he would be assuming the presidency of Ulster, remember the name given to the overall province of Northern Ireland, Hugh believed that an English offensive against him was inevitable. So he did what any Irish chieftain turned earl, turned super powerful landlord would do. He slept with and then married Henry Bagenal's sister against her will, and then entered into open rebellion with the English. The following years are perhaps the proudest, but also the most forgotten period of Irish resistance and military success against England. Within a mixture of truces, Hugh would hand the English successive defeats following the beginning of hostilities in August 1594, and the greatest ever defeat on Irish soil in the Battle of Yellow Ford on the 14th of August 1598, after which Liz sent her favourite, the Earl of Essex, Robert Devereux, who had made his name during the Raid of Cadiz in 1596, which was a masterclass of Anglo-Dutch planning that severely jeopardised Spanish plans for a second armada and bought Liz some valuable time. Robert Devereux arrived with 17,000 men, and his failure amidst his complete lack of appreciation for Hugh's tactics, i.e. hit and run into the woods, then wait for the English to follow, then ambush the English when they enter the woods, would cost him his head once he returned to disgrace to England after losing so many of his men to disease and conflict with the Irish in late 1600. It was in 1599, with a larger English army clearly on the ropes against him, and the whole of the island moving in his name, save for the pale which he so badly wanted to support him, that Hugh reached the height of his power. 
During that time, he had been receiving extensive material support from Scotland and Spain. But the conflict reached its most frightening point for Liz here, when Spain sent an actual invasion force to militarily aid the Irish in what was supposed to be England's backyard. Perhaps, having frustrated further Armada attempts and having wanted to send actual military assistance to aid the Catholic forces in Ireland for years, the dying King Philip II of Spain saw the token Spanish force as a final gesture against his erstwhile English foe, and was as clear a symbol as any that he had not forgotten nor forgiven Liz's initial military involvement in the Netherlands in the years before. Although he would have died almost two full years before the force set sail, its production has Philip's design all over it. It's almost like you can hear him saying to Elizabeth, two can play at that game. But it was this Spanish force that in fact forced Hugh's hand. Since once the Spanish force of 3,500 landed in Kinsale in County Cork, down the south of Ireland, Hugh felt honour bound to assist them, once the Lord Deputy of Ireland, Lord Mountjoy, besieged the Spanish force with 7,000 men. Thus forcing Hugh to march down the length of the country to assist the Spanish. The subsequent siege of Kinsale, that was fought from October 2nd, 1601, to January 3rd, 1602, was the nail in the coffin of a military campaign which had long since been cracked by Lord Mountjoy, who instead of pursuing and engaging with Hugh as his predecessors had done, simply used a scorch-earth policy to starve and burn the rebelliousness out of the Gaelic-Irish lands. It was a ruthless policy, but famine appeared in the end to be the only weakness of the Irish strategy and desperate times, indeed, called for desperate measures. So the role of the famine in Irish history in 1600-1602 was just as crucial as it would be almost 250 years later, when a certain crop made famous by this island failed, starting a series of chain reactions that bore witness to one of the greatest emigrations, and by extension, diasporas, that the world had ever seen. But that is a story for another day. Brendan Fitzpatrick in his book 17th Century Ireland, The War of Religions, gives an interesting perspective on the conflict, and wraps it up quite well in the process. Quote, On the 30th of March 1603, Hugh O'Neill, Earl of Tyrone, surrendered to Lord Deputy Mountjoy at Mellifont. Tyrone was not informed that Queen Elizabeth had died six days earlier. Had he been privy to this information, he might have improved the terms of the treaty, but he could not have undone the manner of his defeat. After several years of the most serious rebellion in Ulster, the country was conquered by a blanket policy of destruction. The Battle of Kinsale itself was a notably indecisive event. The bulk of the Irish forces were not even engaged, while the Spanish contingent was neutralised by siege. Tyrone may have been outwitted by superior tactics, but his inability to retaliate had little to do with military power and everything to do with policy. Mountjoy had followed up his victory at Kinsale not by waging war against Tyrone, but by devastating the country itself, destroying crops and livestock with indiscriminate efficiency. Mountjoy had told the Privy Council before that famine would be the only means of ending the war, and he proved true to his word. End quote. England would emerge from the war with Ireland in 1603 as the victor, but a lot had been taken out of it in the process. Over 18,000 men, more than any other campaign in the Anglo-Spanish War, would serve in Ireland, and Liz would not even see the peace treaty in its complete form. 
After enduring bouts of depression following the death of her closest advisors and friends, Liz died on the 24th of March 1603, aged 69 years old. With her death came the end of the Tudor dynasty and the union of the crowns of England and Scotland under James I. The kingdom she left to James I in 1603 was changed utterly from the kingdom she inherited from her half-sister Mary in 1559. Of that there can be no doubt. England's worldwide trade and diplomatic network was truly global, and could count on allies in the Dutch and Scandinavians, as well as perhaps the French. She had steered England through the terrible times of worry during the years before the Armada, and her strength here would be attested to again whenever England's sovereignty would be threatened in the future by the designs of a foreign conqueror, be they in the name of ideology or mere world domination. Her enemy in Spain had seen a change in leadership too, as Philip II had been succeeded by Philip III in 1598. The closing years of the 16th century had seen greater Anglo-French-Dutch cooperation against their common Spanish enemy, and that had taken Spain down at least half a peg by the time the two kingdoms finally agreed to treat in 1604. It is that peace treaty and date we will jump off from the next time. For now, imagine this scene in Europe. England is about to enter a new period of history, with its greater partnership with Scotland under James I. The Netherlands are about to enter into a new golden age, with their merchants positioned throughout Europe and Scandinavia, and with Spain unable to break their will. France is due to finally resume its mantle of European predominance under Henry IV. After years of internal strife, and playing the manipulated second fiddle to Philip's Spain. All these states, having established and solved their inter-rivalries, were unaware of the fire about to engulf the world. Though the embers had been lit as early as 80 years before, and though all states had done their fair share of fanning the flames since then, it was by no means certain, at the close of the 16th century, that after so much war, a yet more ruinous period of war would soon set them all alight. With the ending of this episode, the close of the 16th century and what it meant for Western Europe has been covered on an interstate level. Next time we'll continue our narrative and follow on from the Anglo-Spanish Treaty into a Europe east and west that seemed to be heading inexorably towards conflict yet again. See you then. My name is Zach and you've been listening to the When Diplomacy Fell special on the Thirty Years' War. Episode 20.0, The End of the 16th Century. Thanks. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 